Well, it's 9.30, so I think we'll have everybody come in, and, and we'll get started with our lesson this morning. All right, let's go ahead and get started on our lesson. Welcome to week 12 of our survey through the books of the Old Testament. This morning we'll be talking about First and Second Samuel, uh, but before we get started, let's uh, go ahead and ask God to bless our time this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for the ability to come together and worship you today and to learn more about uh, your word which you've preserved for us. Father, my plea is that you would make this lesson clear and understandable. Uh, speak through me, Lord, a sinner. Um, but Father, elevate yourself, glorify yourself through First and Second Samuel, this lesson. And Father, again, I pray for all of us as teachers that not only would, would all of us be listening, but actively listening and not just understanding, but able to teach and help others understand uh, what we learn here today and in other lessons. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. But I always like to open up these lessons by asking, why do we have these particular books in the Bible? Why do we have First and Second Samuel, and what do they give us in the Bible? What is the purpose of First and Second Samuel? I hope by the end of this lesson, you'll, you'll be able to explain those things to other people, and you'll be able to see um, what we would be missing if we didn't have First and Second Samuel. Here is our outline for this morning. As you can see, we're going to talk about the purpose. I'm going to try to answer that question of why we have First and Second Samuel. We're going to talk about the authorship. We'll also talk about Samuel, for whom these books are named, and then Saul and David. And it might look like, at a casual glance, that these guys all get equal billing. But I like data, and I wanted to find out who really is the emphasis here. And as you can see, by how many times these men are mentioned in First and Second Samuel, this is clearly by far primarily about King David. He's mentioned 578 times, almost double that of King Saul and even Samuel, the namesake. Interestingly enough, Goliath is very famous, but this is a classic case of what I would say is riding someone's coattails. coattails. He was only mentioned five times, yet he's extremely famous. But let's talk about the first part of our lesson, part one. Why do we have First and Second Samuel? The reason we have these two books is that just like every other book that precedes them so far in our series, they detail, they record, they, they chronicle a very, very important chapter in the history of the nation of Israel. First and Second Samuel record the transition of Israel and their form of government from a theocracy to a monarchy. And you might say, Scott, what is a theocracy? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. A theocracy is a form of government in which God is recognized as the supreme ruler, but where his, his authority is exercised through his earthly representatives. At this point in time, as Al taught us a couple of weeks ago, that was through the judges. So this is God's government. They're in a theocracy, there is no separation of church and state, but they're about to transition to a monarchy, which as I'm sure all of you know, that's a nation governed by a single sovereign man known as a king. Now, last week, Kerry Wilson took us through the book of Ruth, which was recorded, and all those events happened during the latter time period of the kings. And I want you to, if, you're, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Ruth, the very last chapter, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> this genealogy names nine of David's ancestors. And a lot of people think these genealogies are just throwaway information. They are not. 
Ruth 18 through 22, I'm sorry, Ruth 4, 18 through 22, links David, you can see here in my slide here, David is linked through his ancestors back to a guy named Judah, the, the father of the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> this is really important because it directly connects to Genesis 49:10, where Jacob, also known as Israel, blesses his 12 sons, the sons of Israel, and he says to Judah in particular, Judah, your brothers shall praise you, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And he calls Judah a young lion. Now, a scepter is held by a king as a sign of authority. This is a depiction of King Solomon made by an unknown artist. Solomon's holding a scepter. According to Jacob, this symbolic rulership will never leave the tribe of Judah. So this brief genealogy back here at the end of the book of Ruth sets up David's right to the throne. And again, that's what all of First and Second Samuel are leading to. Again, remember that Israel are God's promised people. I mean, his favored people to whom he's made promises. We learn in this series about the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. When we came to Exodus, we learned about the Mosaic covenant. Today, towards the end of my lesson, we're going to learn about the Davidic covenant through which Israel is given the promise of an eternal King. This is the theme of these two books. The whole purpose, again, of these writings is to record that transition from a theocracy to a monarchy, and interestingly, it provides an object lesson through which we can better understand God's plan to save his chosen people and to give them permanent rest through an eternal king. So you could say, based on this, that First and Second Samuel actually helped develop the storyline of the gospel. They advance God's plan to redeem his chosen people through the Messiah. And once again, like Al mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it's fascinating to see that all of these books of the Bible, they're not just random disassociated stories that have been cobbled together into the Bible. They are all intimately connected, and they serve to glorify God, who is their ultimate author. I love that when we see that. Let's talk a little bit about the authorship of First and Second Samuel. These writings uh, detail period, uh, a period of time that happened about over 80 years of, of history. They were recorded roughly 1,000 years before Christ came, plus or minus 40 years either side of that, so about 3,000 years ago. And as you might have guessed, the primary author of these writings is... Thank you, Samuel. Good guess. But did you know that there are two other authors, two other prophets, Gad and Nathan? And that might make you think, wait, what? Why are these books named after Samuel then? It's because Samuel was not just a prophet. He also served as a judge over Israel. He was one of Israel's final judges. And, and it turns out that he was a very, very good judge. He stood out. As a man of God, he had a heart of, of uh, following God's will, and he will forever go down in history as a great and godly leader of Israel. Again, if you look at the, the mentions in, in um, I love data, Gad and Nathan and Samuel are listed here as the three authors. There are three prophets. Samuel is, is listed or mentioned much, much more than them. Um, Gad and Nathan did record a lot of what happened after Samuel died. Obviously, someone had to. Um, Gad and Nathan both spoke to King David after Samuel's death. But it was Samuel who was the primary prophet, God's voice to both Saul and David. And in fact, it was Samuel who anointed them both to be 
kings. So what's the significance of mentioning? we got three authors here. Really not much. It's, it's historically interesting, but the important thing is to understand that they were all three, just like every other author of Scripture, inspired by God. They all three agree with each other, and everything that they wrote agrees with the rest of Scripture. So let's talk a little bit more. Let's go to part three. Let's talk a little bit more about Samuel, the primary author, the man for whom these books are named. Uh, if you want to skip to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, that's always a good place to start. You can see there the book's opening verses tell us he's from the hill country of Ephraim, which is actually significant because guess what? That's where Bethlehem is located. This is why verse 1 calls Samuel's, turns out he's talking about his great, great, great grandfather, says he's an Ephrathite. And this made me wonder. Wow, I wonder how that's ever... Remember in Micah 5.2, the prophet Micah foretold where Jesus would be born. He calls it Bethlehem Ephrathah. You ever wonder why I called it Ephrathah? It's because there was an actual man named Bethlehem. I love the genealogies. They're not random data. They actually connect things together. There was a man named Bethlehem. He was the great-grandson of a real man named Ephrathah for whom this place was called Bethlehem Ephrathah. And that is where Samuel was a descendant of these two guys who came from the very birthplace of Christ. And I'll skip a lot of information here, but just suffice it to say, through a series of very interesting events, Samuel was adopted by a Levitical priest named Eli, who happened to be a judge of Israel. Now, as an adopted father, Eli, being a Levitical priest, he taught Samuel the ways of the priesthood, and Samuel got to grow up in his household watching him rule over Israel as a judge. Samuel, like I mentioned, had a heart for God. He was a very godly man. Once Eli died, Samuel inherited his position as a judge over Israel. And this happened, as we come to First and Second Samuel, the cultural milieu was a very dark one for Israel. They were a, a very weak, idolatrous people. They had just been defeated by the Philistines, and to add insult to injury, the Philistines had actually stolen their Ark of the Covenant. And um, as we learned from Al the other uh, couple of weeks ago, you know, there's a description at the very last verse of the book of Judges of what Israel was like as Samuel would have been taking the throne. In, well, not the throne, but being the judge over Israel. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But during Samuel's rules, rule, his, his years as a judge, it became very clear that he was indeed uniquely God's man. 1 Samuel 3, verses 19 and 20, say this about Samuel. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Eventually, Samuel, like all men, grew old. He could no longer be the judge. And his two sons actually took over as judges. They were the final two judges, Joel and Abijah. Unlike their father, though, Scripture says they didn't walk in his ways. Scripture says and said, Samuel's sons turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. And the people were fed up by now with this theocracy and these corrupt judges. So now let's move to part four of our lesson. The nation of Israel is going to decide they want a king. They no longer want a government where God's recognized as the supreme ruler of the judges. And they said to Samuel... Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They still wanted somebody to judge over them, but they wanted an earthly king that could win battles for them against their enemies. And God grants their request. And he tells 
Samuel, who was very crestfallen over this development, he says, look, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. but They've rejected me from being king over them. And then God has Samuel go and warn the people, by the way, you're not going to like having an earthly king very much. You will not like it. Now, it turns out, interestingly enough, this wasn't the first time the people of Israel had wanted a king. If you remember back in uh, Judges, there was a man named Gideon who was very successful in battles. And they wanted Gideon because he was so good at be- being, um, uh, defeating enemies. They said, we want you to be king. And you know what, what Gideon told them? He says, I will never be your king, nor will my son, nor will my grandson. He said, the Lord will rule over you. Later, they went to a guy named Abimelech and said, we want you to be king. So this wasn't the first time. This is actually the third time Israel wants a king so they can be like all the other nations. But now the idea was about to become reality. But get this, the idea of a king for Israel wasn't original to them. God already had this as part of his sovereign plan for them. Listen to what God said to Israel 350 years before through Moses. This is found in Deuteronomy 17. Moses says to them, when you come to the land of the Lord that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So this is what God had told Israel 350 years before, back when they were camped on the plains of Moab, before they went across the Jordan River and started taking this holy land that they're in now, in Samuel's time. So, God had already given them permission to have a king. It wasn't their idea. He wasn't acquiescing to them. This was his plan all along. And he gave them Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, not from the tribe of Judah. But Saul was, as you know, extremely tall and good-looking. And God had already revealed to the prophet Samuel the plans that he had for Saul, the purpose he had. Chapter 9, verse 16, God says this to Samuel. Tomorrow, Samuel, about this time, I'll send you a man From the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people, and their cry has come to me. So, this very same Samuel, who had ruled as a judge over Israel in his younger days, he was the one that went to inform Saul that he was now going to be king. And Samuel was the one, like I said, that anointed Saul with oil, and he says to him, Samuel says to Saul, You shall rule over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And with that announcement, Israel was now officially a monarchy. They now had a king, no more theocracy. And Saul went to work very quickly. He began to build his resume, and he defeated enemy after enemy. And he was very successful in enemies over the Ammonites and then the hated Philistines that were always pressing on their borders. But that only lasted about three years. Saul was successful for three years, but after about three years, after Saul had, uh, Samuel had anointed him, his career was about to take a sudden nosedive. Let's move to part five of our lesson, which describes this. In the last 19 chapters, I'm not going to go through all of Saul's sin, sins, we don't have time for that, but suffice it to say, Saul was very disobedient. Even though he had Samuel as God's voice in his ear, Samuel was the prophet to the king, he didn't always listen to Samuel. He didn't always listen to God's will. He was impatient. He, he liked to take matters into his own hands. You can read about all this yourself. But finally, after three years of pervasive disobedience and pridefulness, God confronted Saul through Samuel, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. You can go to verse 10 and 11. 
The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then in verse 17, the next morning, Samuel goes to Saul and he says this to him, the Lord anointed you over as king over Israel. And then in verse 22 and 23, he says, Behold, Saul, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. But because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. So God has impeached Saul here. But Saul didn't vacate the throne immediately. God still had plans for him. You see, God had already chosen a new king. It was David. And in one of his last recorded acts before he died, Samuel anoints David as king of Israel. So in uh, chapter 16 of, of uh, 1 Samuel, you'll probably see the little heading says, David anointed as king. Well, that's going to happen three times. Just We're going to try to clear up some confusion here. He was anointed three times, but he didn't take the throne right away. When he was anointed by Samuel, very soon after God had made this announcement of impeachment, it was apparently in a kind of a private ceremony because Saul apparently had no clue that David was going to be the king. After David was anointed, Scripture says that very soon afterwards, the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul. He was still sitting on the throne at this time, remember. Scripture said he was tormented, was Saul, by a harmful spirit from the Lord. And so he wanted somebody to come play soothing music, so he hired a local, young, very talented musician who came very highly recommended, and that was David. And David played beautiful music, and Saul, obviously, again, not knowing David was God's choice to replace him, loved David so much. This local shepherd who came from a guy named Jesse, his father, Saul loved David. And soon after he was hired, again, the Philistines were threatening. Um, this time, everybody was really scared. There was this giant named Goliath. He was a really big guy. You know the story. Saul's army was scared to death. And this young musician who had been a shepherd goes out to battle, and you know the story. He'd killed lions and wolves who tried to attack the sheep, and he nails Goliath in the forehead with a stone at high velocity that dropped him to his, his death. And Saul was so impressed by this, by this young musician, he said, I want you to move in and be a part of my household. And he elevated Samuel, I'm sorry, elevated, there's so many names I sometimes mix them up. He, Saul elevated David to a position of authority within the military, and it turns out David was quite a killer. He was a very good soldier, and he went on to achieve military success time and time again. And his popularity and his fame grew. It began to be evident that God was with him, and Saul was noticing this. And he killed tens of thousands because we know that every time that David came through a town of Israel, the women fawned over him. And they sang a little song that said, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. So popularity was with David. Saul was very proud, and he, was, he became insanely jealous because people were behind him. His heart began to burn with envy, with resentment. He was also very afraid because by this time, he knew that God's favor was not on him, but on David. And he began to worry and began to look out of the corner of his eye at David as a potential threat to his throne like many political leaders do. So, he began to plot to kill David. One of the plots that he had was, what if I have David marry my daughter? And he thought to himself, I know a way I can get David killed. I'm going to send David out 
and have him try to pick off a bunch of these Philistines by himself. So he goes to David and he says, look, David, you can have my daughter, but I'm not going to exact an exorbitant bride price. You're not going to have to give me a bunch of wealth. That's normally what I would charge. Well, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. A suitor who wants one of my daughters, the king's daughters, but here's what I'm going to offer you. You go out and kill 100 Philistines by yourself by this date, you can have my daughter. Thinking that surely David won't be able to do this by himself, David goes out and in the time frame kills not only 100 Philistines, but 200, takes their foreskins, gives them to Saul, and Saul's plan has backfired in, in, in ways that he couldn't have imagined. Now he has to give his daughter to David for marriage, the guy that he wanted dead. And to make matters worse, Saul's daughter is so enamored with David, she falls in love with him. And Saul is more furious than ever, and he knows for sure God is with David. And he continues to plot to kill him. So things were not going well for Saul, but they're about to get a lot worse. You see, the Philistines were now threatening another attack. The very next day, he knew they were at his door, and Saul was very very afraid. And he no longer had Samuel, his spiritual counselor, to go to. He didn't have the voice of God. But he did an interesting thing. He went to the Lord in prayer. And God didn't answer him. And then Saul did something very Saul-like. He took matters into his own hands once again, and he went to the occult. He went to a spiritist. And chapter 28 details his visit with this medium. Some, some versions call her the Witch of Endor who brings up the spirit of Samuel. And a lot of people think, well, it was really just a spirit appearing to be Samuel? I, I don't know. The text says that Samuel said to Saul, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Remember, Samuel was dead. He's basically telling Saul, you're going to be dead within 24 hours. And the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And the very next day, Saul would be dead on the battlefield. So the the words came true. So the question always is, and this is not a major important thing, but I bring it up because a lot of people wonder, did that medium actually bring up the spirit of Samuel? It's really interesting. It's debatable. It could go either way. If you want to really talk about it more, I, did. I ended up doing a lot of research. I've got some thoughts and some notes. We can talk about it. But it doesn't matter. The fact is that Saul did die on the battlefield the next day. But it was interesting that they had mortally wounded him and he decided to fall on his sword and kill himself rather than to be subject to torture or whatever they wanted to do. So it was kind of a fitting ending for a man who, it was a pathetic ending really, you could say, fitting ending, pathetic ending. This was a man who had failed to fear and obey the Lord. And the Lord had given Saul everything, including the kingship. But that's how he ends. Now before we move on to 2 Samuel, I want to focus your attention on um, chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, verse 9. It's a fascinating, kind of a morbid description of something that probably everybody's like, oh. But there's actually some significance to this verse before we move to 2 Samuel. I want you to look at 1 Samuel 31, verse 9. It tells what the Philistines did to Saul's dead body. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They carried the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. Why do you think these pagans would carry the good news of the death of the king of Israel to the house of their idols? Could it be that perhaps to pagans, when the king of Israel is struck down, that they think that the God of Israel has been defeated? Keep this in mind as we move to 2 Samuel, 
because we're going to learn about what God has to say about establishing the throne of his kingdom that will endure forever. Let's talk now about David's rule over Judah. This is really interesting. The book of 2 Samuel begins with David learning about the deaths of Saul and his sons as well. But instead of rejoicing, David grieves for them. And this is shocking. Every time I've read through these books, there's all this talk about David grieving this guy who had tried to kill him. It had become obvious to him. He knew that Saul had tried to kill him. His sorrow was particularly great for Jonathan, Saul's son. Remember, this was his brother-in-law. And when he'd moved in with his family, they were like brothers. They loved each other, so he was grieved. But why would he grieve over Saul? Saul had plotted to murder David on more than one occasion. David had escaped. He'd outsmarted Saul. He actually had the opportunity to kill him at one point, as you know, but he didn't. So my question has always been, why was David so loyal to this scumbag king who wanted him dead? After all, I mean, if David could have killed him, he'd kill a lot of people, starting with Goliath and tens of thousands of others. He had blood on his hands. It wasn't new to him to kill. So why did he refuse to kill Saul? Why? It's because David considered Saul's life precious and of tremendous value. When David surprised Saul in a cave, you remember the story, Saul was with the posse and he came into the cave to relieve himself on the wall and David was hiding there and he could have killed him and he came out and he tells Saul why he didn't kill him. He told him what he had told his friends. He said, I will not put my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. God had appointed Saul as king. David had no uh, command contrary to that to kill Saul. He still viewed him as his lord, his earthly lord, and he refused to go against God's will. David actually had the right to the throne after Saul had committed suicide on the battlefield. He'd been chosen, he'd been anointed by Samuel, but David was going to have to wait to take over as the king. Again, this gets a little confusing, but if you read the text and study it, you can make sense of all this. I'm going to condense the first four chapters of uh, 2 Samuel here because this is where we talk about David's rule over Judah. Saul is dead again. It's really It's interesting. We need to understand the political climate at this time had Saul had died. Remember, he had turned most of his power people against David. He was um, marshalling them to kill the guy. And a lot of the, the, I guess you'd call it the power people in Israel were very loyal to Saul after his death, apparently. And even though Samuel had anointed David as the king, Saul's allies that were still in power once he died, they felt like one of his sons should be on the throne, not this son-in-law. They wanted Ishbosheth, who was Saul's son. And so they named him king of Israel. Even with all of, you think about it, David was tremendously popular with the people, a lot of military accomplishments. But they refused to accept him as king, did Israel. There was only one tribe, interestingly enough, guess what tribe that was that was loyal to David? Judah, exactly. Judah was um, loyal to David, and they anointed him as king over Judah. So this is the second time he's going to be anointed. And this is the first time that Israel had been divided. They are now politically divided. This is very important to understand. We have a northern kingdom of Israel, 11 tribes are loyal to Ishbosheth and Saul, 
who were from the tribe of Benjamin. And then we had loyal Judah in the south where David was the king. This was a divided kingdom. It lasted for seven years. And it's very interesting that the Lord was obviously with David because guess what? Kind of like a, a North Korea, South Korea thing, Judah prospered tremendously under David's leadership. Shocker. The Lord was with David. And up north, where Ishbosheth was ruling, decline. They were bottoming out. And obviously, there were some people, they were actually from the tribe of Benjamin, interestingly enough, that didn't like Ishbosheth and Saul. They didn't feel like this guy should be king. And they did an interesting thing. There was one man, apparently, who was the power behind Saul and Ishbosheth, protected Ishbosheth, had elevated him to the throne. These guys took him out, and that left Ishbosheth vulnerable. And then they assassinated Ishbosheth, thinking they'd done a great service to King David. They took the head of Ishbosheth and they said, We killed him, he's out of the way, and so his power people are gone. And David had no knowledge of this. He wasn't implicated, he wasn't guilty of this. This wasn't what God had commanded. And David had them put to death. But the fact remained that Saul and Ishbosheth were now gone. The people of Israel said, We want you to be our king now. They'd watch what he'd done with Judah. And so they, for the third time, David is anointed. So if you have a subheading in your Bible, it says, David anointed king. This is now the third time. And now he actually takes the throne as ruler of Israel. Israel is reunited. And the reason that I bring all of this up is because. This seven-year period of division left some very, very deep political fault lines that are going to manifest themselves later. I think in a few weeks, Kerry Wilson, um, uh, Michael Dietzel is going to teach First and Second Kings. So remember these political fault lines that developed. Israel is now reunited, but it's important to understand this history. And let's move to part seven. Let's finish up as we talk about David's rule now as king over Israel. Once he was seated on the throne of Israel, he immediately began to get to work, and he made some significant steps. The first thing that he did was he moved uh, from Hebron. I'll go back up a couple of slides here. He moved the capital. Oops, sorry. He moved the capital from Hebron, where he'd been ruling in the south, up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was now the political center of Israel. That made it more centralized, more defensible against enemies. He also took um, uh, the tabernacle and moved it up to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was now the political and the uh, religious center of Israel. That was very important. So with God's favor on him, um, he went on and defeated enemy after enemy, battle after battle. As king of Israel, Israel now began to push back their enemies. And under David's rule in Israel, the boundaries were actually pushed farther out towards those original boundaries that God had promised to Abraham so many years ago in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, uh, during some time from rest from war, later in his, his kingdom, David had a chance to sit back and relax and take it all in. And he was looking at his palace, which was made of expensive cedar wood imported from Lebanon, he became cognizant of how much God had given him. And then he looks at the tabernacle, this worn-out old tent that they'd been given hundreds of years ago that was God's dwelling place, and he says, this is not right. And he went to Nathan, the prophet Nathan, his friend and counselor, and he says, look, I've got a plan. I'm going to rebuild a temple, a permanent resting place for God, not this cloth place. God's house should be better than my house. 
And Nathan's like, good idea. Nathan goes home, goes to bed. God comes to Nathan that night, and he tells him, no, that is not my plan. David's not going to build my temple because he's got blood on his hands. But he does make a promise for David. He makes him a key promise, and this is a very important promise. I want you to flip to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the, we're about to read the key pivotal passage from both of these books, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to start in the second half of verse 8. 2 Samuel 7, God has some promises. We're going to read through verse 16. He says to David, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give them rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... Some versions say, if he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What we just read is the Davidic covenant. It is repeated in other places in Scripture as well. We'll get to that. But know that it was always planned that not only Israel, but all the nations would be ruled by David's offspring, the Messiah. It was a singular offspring. And the lion from the tribe of Judah that Jacob spoke of so long ago, that's who he's talking about here. Some of this does pertain to Samuel, his son. We'll talk about that later. But I want to go back and remember that verse 9 from 1 Samuel 31 that I, that I read to you. Remember how the Philistines carried the good news of the death of the king of Israel to the house, thinking that perhaps the king of Israel being struck down meant that their God had been defeated. According to what we just read here, this Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel, they were wrong. So like the Abrahamic covenant, this Davidic covenant was a unilateral, unconditional covenant that God promised to them. It was not like the Mosaic covenant, which was dependent on their actions, this Davidic covenant, if you, if you read through that section, God makes the statement, I will, about eight different times. So what he promised here was not dependent on David's obedience or Israel's obedience. So let's do a quick recap. What exactly did he promise them? Four things. He said, I'll make your name great, and he did. We're still talking about him 3,000 years later. He said he'd appoint a permanent place of rest for Israel to call their own. That was temporarily true. And some of Israel's back there now, but this has not been fully fulfilled. They do not have a permanent place of rest. They're still confronted by enemies. Third promise, he'd raise up one of David's offspring to rule the throne forever. Like I said, Solomon, his son, did rule, but it was temporary, so that's not yet fulfilled. 
And this is an interesting one. Promise number four. David's house, which is a dwelling place, and his kingdom and his throne would last forever. Again, this is obviously not yet fulfilled. But if you think about it, he's describing a a future kingdom here, an eternal kingdom and a, a future house. So this should make us think about the last three books of the book of Revelation, the last three chapters, rather. Christ has gone to establish a home for us. He's preparing a place for us. If you read chapter 20 of Revelation, it speaks of a time when Christ returns to earth, literally and physically, to rule for a thousand years. I know some people listening to this don't believe that it's a thousand years, but read it closely because he says a thousand years about six times. Then after the final defeat of Satan, Christ continues to rule in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is all tied back to the Davidic covenant. Revelation 21.2 says, this holy city, the new Jerusalem, descends out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, David's name was made great, just as God had promised. We're still talking about him 3,000 years later. We're still honoring him. But I want to make this point before we move to close. Just like all his forefathers before him, just like every one of us, David was still an imperfect sinner saved by God's grace, wasn't he? The last 14 chapters of 2 Samuel detail the latter part of his rule over Israel, and they were marked by sin and trouble. And I don't have to tell you, everybody's probably very familiar with the story of his sin with Bathsheba. He looked, he had some lustful thoughts, he let them linger, and he took action. So he committed adultery, and then we all know that when she got impregnated, he had her husband effectively killed. So he was guilty of not only adultery, but murder. And to make it worse, he also was guilty of not confessing his sin until Nathan, the prophet, came and confronted him. Here's what you've done. And to his credit, David, this great sinner, repented. And he said famously, my sin is against the Lord and the Lord alone. He repented. But he still suffered punishment for his sins. The baby that was born to Bathsheba died. One of his sons would end up raping one of his daughters. Another of his sons would grow up, run away from home, and come back years later and start a rebellion against his father, David. So even though David's sins had been forgiven, uh, we can learn that even forgiven sin still has consequences. And now throughout history, if you think about it, everybody that reads the Bible, when they read about David, they know about his sins. He's famous But in this area, he's very infamous. So here's a question. Why did God reject Saul but forgive David, this great sinner? 2 Samuel 5.10 tells us why. It says, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Paul, in Acts 13.22, speaks about God's feelings about King David. Acts 13.22, After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So even though David had committed terrible sins, again, including murder, adultery, he, David, was obedient to God's will. He never turned away from him. David had a heart for the Lord. Saul did not. So what are we to learn from First and Second Samuel? 
we have to understand again that it was always God's plan for them to be ruled by a king, an eternal king. Sure, Israel wanted a king for themselves so they could be like the rest of the world, and God gave them a king, but it wasn't because they changed his mind again. We have to understand this. God was, in effect, giving them an object lesson. Think about this. Through their human kings, they had the opportunity to grasp what it was like to be ruled by a king unilaterally ruling from a throne. They also got to experience the contrast between how sinful and how disobedient and deficient earthly kings can be. They would stand in stark contrast to the eternal king that God had promised them would come through the line of David from the tribe of Judah. And if you think about it as we sit here today, believers, this is our blessed hope. This is the promise that we all bank on, that Christ will come and reign again. And we can all say amen to the fact that God keeps his promises, doesn't he? So unfortunately, we're out of time. Um, In just about 40 minutes, we covered about 80 years of history, an important chapter in the nation of Israel where they transitioned from this theocracy. We heard about the last four judges, Eli, Samuel, Samuel's sons, the first king where the monarchy started, the second king of David, and this very important critical passage where God promises to David, one of your offspring will rule forever. There's so much more we could have talked about here today. I had to leave out a lot. I hope you all read it for yourselves. I hope this is helpful so that we're not just passively listening. My prayer has been this week that as we go through these books that we will internalize these things so that we can teach other people. People are reading their Bibles. We're still in the new year, basically, and they have questions about these things. So believers, let's teach that to them. And I'm going to leave it there for now. That's it for today's lesson, and we'll see you back here at 1030 where we will worship this God.